Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Turn to Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. But let me back up into chapter 23 and read the few verses before the 24th chapter. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the law, according to the commandment. Now chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John ended their biographies of the Lord Jesus all of them with the account of the resurrection. This is the climax of the Gospels. All of them begin the story, the narrative, the same way. That women came to the tomb early on Sunday morning, and they found the stone rolled away and the tomb emptied. They all begin with that. And then there's some slight differences between them in the details they're not contradictions. They're, they're simply how biographies would be told from different perspectives. 
and they account differently for these details. So here's something to think about. No one actually saw Jesus Christ rise from the dead. In other words, nobody saw him get off of the bed of limestone inside the cave that Joseph of Arimathea had prepared for his burial and saw him leave. No one saw that. But the Gospels have several clues and evidences that were intentionally left behind that the writers include in the narrative that all hint at the fact that he was raised from the dead, that the dead, crucified body of Jesus literally came back to life. He was resurrected. But resurrection, as you know, is not a resuscitation. His resurrection is not the same as when he raised Lazarus from the dead. That was a resuscitation. Though it was a miraculous one because Lazarus had been dead four days and his body had already begun to decay and stink, the, the text tells us in John 11. That was a, a miraculous resuscitation, but Lazarus ended up dying again. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ immortalized him. His body underwent the transformation that we read about that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on resurrection and the nature of the body. Much of that is taken from Jesus Christ himself and the body that he had, a body that was physical. You could touch him, and the the apostles heard him. They spoke with him, but they say they touched him. So it was tangible, tangible body, but yet it could pass into a room when the doors were closed. And he exited his tomb, the burial chamber of Joseph, not because the stone was rolled away to let him out. He passed right through it. The stone was rolled away, as you know, so that the women could go in. That's the reason. So what I want to look at in this account that we read in Luke 24 is Luke's narrative of these Hence, these suggestions, as it were, and then some real amazing evidences, a combination of clues and evidences that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. This is before there is any appearance of him. So we're not looking at the appearances this morning. We're looking at what he left behind intentionally that carried a message for these women. And there are six of them. So think, let's think together through this passage. And the first obvious one in the first two verses is that the stone was rolled away. Now notice when they came to the tomb. It was the first day of the week. So that's Sunday. We know the Sabbath began late Friday at sundown and went all the way through Saturday sundown. That was the Jewish Sabbath The Lord Jesus had to be buried before the Sabbath began, so Joseph was fairly rushed in burying him. They didn't complete the burial, so the women had prepared these spices. It was to fragrance the tomb as well as to 
put off the decaying process for a time. This is what the spices were for, the myrrh and aloes and the other things that the Gospels mention. Joseph got some of it there, but it needed more. And so the women come, believing that he's still dead. They were not expecting the resurrection. In fact, on their way to the tomb early in the morning, it's still dark, John tells us, but by the time they're at the tomb, it's the break of day and they're beginning to see light. They're wondering, how are we going to get in? Who's going to move the, the stone for us? And then they came and found that the stone had be rolled away. It says something about their devotion to even a dead Jesus. Pretty amazing. These women loved him. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He had cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. And they had great respect for him, and now they're coming to finish the burial process. But lo and behold, the stone had been moved. Now, this stone was significant. This is a big piece of rock in the shape of a disc. It could have been anywhere from three feet to, some say, six feet in diameter. We don't know. Probably fairly thick. It could have weighed several hundred pounds on up to a ton. A couple of men could have rolled it into place, but the difficult thing was getting it out of that groove and getting it away from the entrance. And here was a group of women. What are we going to do? But the stone had been rolled away for them. What an amazing thing. Now, we're not told here who rolled the stone away. Who moved the stone? Matthew's gospel tells us an angel came and rolled the stone away. In fact, when they approached, there was an angel sitting on the stone. That's Matthew's account. That tells me that stone was not only rolled back away from the entrance, it was rolled away and dropped flat on the ground and an angel was sitting on top of it. An interesting detail. So that's the first amazing clue that something happened. That was unexpected. Who moved the stone? There's a book by that name. Who moved the stone? Now, secondly, in the next pair of verses, three in the beginning of verse four, we come uh, to the most amazing thing of all, and that is that when they found the stone rolled away, but notice what Luke says they did not find. They did not find the body. And so this is the great thing about the Christian faith is an empty tomb. The highlight of my experience in Israel a few years ago was going into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and entering that edical, as they call it, inside the rotunda of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and being able to put my hand on the bed. That has the history behind it of being the burial place of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how much of that you've read about. But we can thank the Emperor Constantine for the preservation of Jesus' burial spot in the 4th century. Constantine became a Christian. As you know, he made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. 
And he wanted to preserve and protect the, the traditional places connected to the Christian faith. So he went to Jerusalem and he asked the Christians where Jesus was buried, where he died. They knew exactly where it was. But it happened to be covered up by the Emperor Hadrian by, with a temple to Venus. He had buried the tomb and Calvary under the temple to Venus. Constantine took it all away. He excavated it. He exposed the cave. He cut off part of the cave. And now the cave and Golgotha is under the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. They've cut windows in the building so you can see the rock. And one of the things that they discovered in 2016 when they had to redo the edicle inside the church because it was falling apart, had cracks in it, they found that the cave walls were still there. They were not expecting that. Thought Constantine would have taken the walls away and just left the bed, but he didn't. He left the walls up so high. He took the top off of the cave. It's fascinating. Though the tomb of the Lord Jesus was empty when they came to it. There's no satisfactory explanation for the empty tomb. The earliest explanation was the enemies of Christ accused the disciples of stealing the body. But making that accusation, they were admitting that the tomb was empty indirectly. It was an admission that the tomb was empty. This is their explanation. Some of the other explanations is Jesus never really died. He swooned after being crucified. He passed out. They buried him. He wasn't dead. And he revived in the coolness of Joseph's tomb and then pretended to be resurrected. That's the theory of the Passover plot. And then there's some who say the women went to the wrong tomb. Well, that can't be because the text tells us they watched. They stood at a distance and watched the crucifixion. These women from Galilee, the whole list of them. Then they watched to see where Joseph took the body and buried him. So they knew exactly where the tomb was. It was very near Golgotha. Now, I want you to note here that Jesus is called the Lord Jesus at the end of verse 3. Did you know that? And they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. That is the first time and the only time in the Gospels of all of them where he is called the Lord Jesus. And notice it's after his resurrection the conqueror of death, that he's called that on this occasion. Now, when you go to Luke's second volume, what are the two volumes that Luke wrote? Well, his gospel and the book of Acts. Two-volume work on the history of Christianity. Biography of the Son of God, and then a biography of what Christ continued to do from the Father's right hand in his works in this world through the apostles. He's called the Lord Jesus 19 times in the book of Acts. 
as the resurrected Christ, the conqueror of death and the grave. Now, notice the third thing that is left behind, actually by his commission, no doubt, is the angels that were sent on a mission to be at the tomb, to speak to these women. Now, some of the Gospels say there's one angel that spoke. Here it says two. I think there could have been three. It could have been the one sitting outside on the, on the stone that had been rolled away and two inside. These are this, this variation in the account shows that these are independent testimonies to the record, to the historical data that they had. It says two men. It doesn't say two angels. It says two men here. But we know they're angels because frequently in the word of God, angels are described as human beings. They look like human beings. They can materialize and look like a human being. Always male, never female. They're always male. And they don't have wings. These angels, the ones that have wings are mentioned in Isaiah 6. The seraphim have wings. We know they're angels because they're dazzling in how they appear. They're in dazzling apparel. So they're they're showing that this means of radiant, brightness, gleaming, something supernatural about these men. And then the response of the women, they were frightened, they bowed their face to the ground. There's always the response of man when he encounters a supernatural creature, let alone God himself. They collapse under the overwhelming experience of encountering a creature they've never seen before that's powerful in appearance, overwhelming. But these angels are wonderful. Look at the the message. Look at their question. This is the announcement. So this is all part of the clue. I mean, they're telling them now, here's the evidence. They tell the women right off, why are you looking literally for the living one in the place of the dead? What a question. In other words, there's there's a contradiction in this. You're coming to a graveyard to look for the living. You're not going to find him here. He's the living one. His present state is incompatible with death and the grave. So they're they're searching in vain. They're not going to find him there inside the tomb. And then they say, and these are the the great words of Resurrection Sunday, he is not here but has risen. The, The greatest message that the world has ever heard is right here. This is what gives us hope. If we didn't have this, although Jesus died on the cross, seemingly as a sacrifice for sin, if he is not risen then our faith, Paul tells us, is in vain. We are yet in our sins. We are of all men most miserable. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry like the rest of the world. The resurrection is what gives the church its great hope. 
And what is our hope? Not simply going to heaven. That's not the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope is resurrection. That's the thing that Paul presents to the church. Yes, in the meantime, when we die and we're disembodied and our spirit leaves and goes into the Lord's presence, that is a temporary state. That's not the final state of the Christian. That's not my final hope, going to heaven when I die. No, the final hope is being resurrected and having a body like his glorious body and then living in a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity, free of sin, free from the curse, in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. That is what the Christian's hope is. Pie in the sky, by and by. It is. And I'm not making fun of it, but when people, when Christians are accused of believing that, yeah, there's a sense in which that's true. It is the future hope. These are holy angels that are saying this to the women. These are not Bad angels. You know, there's two different kinds of angels. There's the fallen angels that deceive and bring darkness into people's lives. They're called demons. The fallen angel. No, these are, these are the angels that remained faithful to God that did not follow Satan in his rebellion. They're the holy elect angels. Paul calls them elect angels. So you can, you can believe it, that their testimony is true. They're faithful witnesses. There's two of them. We know in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established according to the word of God. This is the, the bar for establishing the truthfulness of a testimony. So these angels are speaking the truth. He is not here. He is risen. What a piece of evidence that is for the women. They haven't yet seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Not yet, not according to this account. Now, fourthly, and this continues the testimony of the angels, they remind the women of Jesus' own prediction. Jesus left this prediction behind. How many times did he remind the apostles? I found four times in Matthew's account. He has the most times Jesus told his apostles that he was going to be put to death and rise from the dead. In some of the accounts, he gives details about his passion, the nature of his suffering, connected with being crucified. But on four different occasions, he told the apostles, and they never got it. They didn't get it. His enemies did, however. Because they reminded Pilate in Matthew 27, this deceiver said that he was going to rise again the third day. Oh, therefore, we'll have a guard. We'll seal the stone and set a guard there to make sure. The angels knew it. The angels were very intensely interested in the earthly ministry of their God, God the Son. When he came and became a man. They followed him, no doubt, 
His words, his actions, they, fought, they, they knew it all. They knew they could quote him. And they're quoting Jesus here. Notice how they break it down, what he prophesied. This is what Jesus prophesied of himself. That the Son of God, the Son of Man rather, must be delivered. In the original language, this is a word that means absolutely necessary. We call it a theological necessity. A theological imperative. That is, it must because it's in God's plan. It's what was predicted in the scriptures, and the scriptures must be fulfilled. It's a must because this is the only way that we could be redeemed. The only way we could be liberated from our sin is by the Son of God, first of all, giving himself over to sinners, being delivered over to sinful men. Remember all the times they tried to take him? They couldn't lay a hand on him. In Nazareth, they wanted to push him over a a cliff, over a precipice. He passed right through them. No, not until his hour came was he going to submit to sinful men and allow them to do what they wanted to him. So that was the first thing, is he had to deliver himself up. He had to voluntarily put himself in the hands of sinful men, and that ultimately climaxed in his Horrific, shameful, torturous death on a cross. But he was going to be crucified. But the story didn't end there. He was to be raised the third day. Because having fulfilled God's plan, having satisfied the justice of God, God exalted his son. He rewarded him for his voluntary sacrifice and offering in our place. This is how Paul puts it in Philippians 2, that he humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient even to the death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So when they are reminded by the angels of what Jesus said, then they also remembered, oh yes, I do remember that now, that he said that. The women are put in remembrance of Jesus' self-prophecy. So that's another indication, evidence of his death, a clue was his own prediction. Now, number five, and this is, this is something to think about. In verses 9 to 11, we have now the list of the women who came to the tomb. And Luke tells us that they went and told the apostles what had just happened, what they were told, but what was the response of the apostles. Now, this is the 11. Judas is gone. He is out of the picture. He committed his treachery against the Lord Jesus, and it, it was so horrible, his ending. Now it's just the 11, but they're in hiding. 
Doesn't make them look like heroes at this point, the apostles, by contrast. And the women take this message back to the apostles. Mary Magdalene heads the list. She always does. She's kind of like the leader of these women, kind of like Peter was of the apostles. Mary Magdalene, followed by another Mary. And we know also Salome was there, the wife of Zebedee, of John and James. And then it says that there were other women with them. We're not told who they were, but it was a group. And the apostles, they didn't believe them. They thought it was all nonsense, idle tales, but the original means it was nonsense. It, were, it was like they were babbling. There's two things to see here. What's significant about this? It is an important criteria for evaluating the reliability of a historical record for accuracy and truthfulness to see if there's any details that are embarrassing in the account. This is an indication of the reliability of a historical record. Do they include something that looks awkward and embarrassing? In other words, if this was a story concocted that was a pure hoax, that there, it was not true, then you would expect to find the apostles being heroes, presented as heroes, but they're not. They're, they're hiding for fear of the Jews. So that's an embarrassment, actually. The men who were Jesus' closest circle that he mentored and trained for three years, they deserted him in the middle of his passion, and they're still cowering with fear. It doesn't make them look very good. The other side has to do with the women being the first to announce his resurrection. A woman was not considered a reliable witness in first century Palestine. They were not allowed to be a legal witness in a court of law. So that plays into why the apostles thought that their story was nonsense. They already were skeptical of a woman bringing a testimony like that. Now, I'm not saying that to say anything bad about women this morning, so don't take it like that. I'm telling you how it was in the first century. This is how they viewed it. So the fact that the angels gave the message to the women and they were told to take this to the apostles, that's one of those awkward, embarrassing details in the record. So this adds to the truthfulness of what we're told. That adds to the, the power of it. Now finally, the sixth and final thing is in verse 12. And th this is a, a beautiful detail. And it involves Peter. Now we know John's account 
In John's Gospel, he has both himself, the Apostle John, though he does not call himself John in his Gospel, he's the one whom Jesus loved. He and Peter ran to the tomb together. So the majority of the apostles did not believe the women. However, it would appear that something sparked in Peter. And I can understand why. He was hoping this was real. Hoping it was true. This is the man who had denied the Lord Jesus three times. Cursing and swearing he did not know the man. And after the cock crowed the third time, it all came back to him and his eyes in Luke's account met the Lord Jesus Christ because he was in the same courtyard within earshot. Jesus heard the denial and they were able to look at each other. And it says Peter went out weeping. He was undone by what he did. The guilt, the sorrow, the shame that Peter must have felt. But if he thought that Jesus was dead, and that was it, he'd never have an opportunity to make it right with him. So when he hears that he may be alive, he goes to the tomb, hoping he can confess. It's wonderful because later in the chapter, we're told in verse 34, the Lord has indeed risen and has appeared to Simon. So he had a personal visit with the Lord Jesus Christ later where he got things right with him. But Peter runs to the tomb, hoping it's true. And the tomb is not entirely empty. There's something there still. What is it? Well, notice what the text says. Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, because it wasn't a full-on doorway into the tomb. These were smaller openings. So he had to kind of crouch down, and he peered inside. The text indicates that he was leaning forward, really looking at it. And he noticed the grave clothes were left behind. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, meaning there's no body there. The body's gone, but the grave clothes are still there. Now, Jesus' body was wrapped with cloth and a linen shroud. There was quite a bit involved in preparing him for burial, that part of it. John's Gospel gives us more detail about it. It tells us that the angels were sitting inside at where the head was and where the feet were on the bed, the niche carved out of the cave wall where his body had been laid. How would you know where the head was and where the feet were? Probably because it's a detail indicating that the grave clothes were laying there 
as if the body came right out of them and they just collapsed and were flat. This is what happened. Jesus did not stand up and start unbandaging himself. He didn't need to. He had a resurrected body, body that passed through walls. So now he passed out of his grave clothes. The grave clothes flattened. But John's gospel gives us a precious detail that the cloth around his head was neatly folded up and put in another place nearby. These were all clues that Jesus himself left behind for his apostles. And Peter is looking at this. And notice what his response is. He went home marveling at what had happened. It's overwhelming. Peter knows there's something here. Something glorious has happened. The fact that the grave clothes are there tells us that Jesus' body was not stolen by anyone, friend or foe. Because a grave robber would not take the time and the trouble to take all of the grave clothes off and carry his naked body somewhere. No, the grave clothes were left behind as a clue by Jesus for his apostles, for the women, for Peter. Are you amazed by this story? Peter was by the experience. This is a historical account that we just looked at. It's honest. It's real. It's awkward. It's detailed and it's moving. It's it's gripping. It's very convincing. It's very persuasive. I must believe in the resurrection to be a Christian. I I must believe in the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ to be a true Christian. If you look up and what the polls say about people who go to church today, there's a good percentage of people that go to church that do not believe in the resurrection. It is impossible to be a Christian without believing in the resurrection. How can you say that? That sounds so judgmental. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Romans 10.9 I like what Jesus said to Thomas, who did not believe at first. Thomas happened to be absent that first Sunday night of the resurrection day when he appeared in the room with the other ten apostles and showed himself. And then they reported to Thomas, we saw the Lord. I I will not believe unless I can put my finger into the nail prints in his hands. One week later on the next Sunday, Jesus showed up when Thomas was there. And we all know how that went. Thomas didn't need to put his finger into the nail prints. He backed out on that. 
he simply worshipped. My Lord, my God. But Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen, you believe. Now Jesus speaks to us today, 20 centuries later. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. You are blessed this morning. If you are a believer in the resurrection, you have been blessed. Blessed with faith. Blessed by God with salvation. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Do you believe it? Are you convinced the Son of God is alive today? J.I. Packer put it like this. The victim of Calvary, the one who died on Golgotha's hill, the victim of Calvary is loose and at large. He's the eternal contemporary of every generation. You cannot escape Jesus Christ. You may think you can go through life and ignore him. Oh, maybe when I get to be old, I'll maybe think about him more seriously. You can't get away from Jesus. Nobody can escape Jesus. Where do you stand in relationship to him today? Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.